Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. This afternoon, grab your snorkel, grab your fins. We're going deep, baby. We're going deep under the sea. David Guggenheim's here from the Ocean Foundation. One of the things that I saw on this trip that shocked me, that I've never seen before, on one dive, I saw four lionfish. Now, a lionfish is actually the very beautiful fish from the Pacific, and it has huge spines, but those spines are deadly. One touch of one of those spines is enough to kill a human being. Whoa. Get ready to take the plunge. David Guggenheim and the Ocean Foundation, right now on Brent Holland. Dr. Guggenheim. He is president of One Planet, One Ocean, a project of the Ocean Foundation and director of its Cuba Marine Research and Conservation Program. He is currently leading a major project to evaluate collaboration in marine science and conservation among Cuba, Mexico, and the U.S. and leading the first ever comprehensive research and conservation program in Cuba's Gulf of Mexico region, a joint effort with the University of Havana. Welcome to the show, Dr. Guggenheim. Thank you very much. Let's dive right in, and the pun is fully intended. Can we talk about the Ocean Foundation? The Ocean Foundation is a nonprofit organization based here in Washington, D.C., but it's really different from other sorts of nonprofits. If you think of a community foundation and what a community foundation does, it's really a collection of projects that better the community. It can be individuals, it can be large nonprofit organizations, all coming under the umbrella of that community foundation. Well, the Ocean Foundation is essentially the community foundation for the oceans, which is a pretty big community. So it's a collection of international projects and people working hand-in-hand to protect and restore the ocean. Can you take us to Cuba now and under the water there? What would we see if we were diving just off the shores of Cuba? Well, I can take you to Cuba a lot easier than I can take my next-door neighbor to Cuba because, of course, with the U.S. embargo of Cuba, travel is very, very difficult. In fact, Mm -hmm. I fly through Toronto when I get a chance, which geographically makes no sense, but from a logistics point of view, it makes perfect sense. But Cuba is really one of the least known corners of the Gulf of Mexico, of the Caribbean. It's an enormous island. It's larger than all of the other Caribbean islands combined. And it has a terrific natural history, all sorts of amazing life. And much of that life has gone unexplored. 
up to this point just because Cuba has not had the resources. And of course, since the revolution, that's become especially difficult in terms of resources to do that sort of work. So beginning about a decade ago, we started a partnership with Cuban colleagues at the University of Havana and other institutions to see what we could do in working together. The first thing I learned the hard way was it's difficult. If you're an American in the United States trying to work in Cuba, it's a lot of red tape. It's a lot of annoying bureaucracy. But when things go well, they go splendidly well. The Cuban people are wonderful. They're bright and intelligent uh, hardworking people, and it's been simultaneously the most gratifying work of my career and most frustrating work of my career. We've undertaken over those years the first ever comprehensive exploration of Cuba's Gulf of Mexico waters. It's really never been looked at before, and we are creating the first maps of that region and really understanding what's going on biologically. And there's an important lesson here. I have seen coral reefs and fish and sharks and you name it. It was really like getting into a time machine and going back 500 years in time to when Christopher Columbus first set foot on that island. It is incredibly moving to see nature in its undisturbed state. And one of the most profound things to see are healthy corals because elsewhere in the world, just about any scuba diver can tell you they've seen the change over the last 20, 30, 40 years. These coral reefs have really died. We've seen about a 25% decline in coral reefs over the last 50 years, and it's estimated that another 25% is destined to go within the next 20 years or so. In the Florida Keys here in the United States, just down at the southern tip of Florida, I saw that reef in 1974, magnificent. That's what got me into marine biology mm -hmm. in the first place. And today that reef, almost half of it is gone in terms of the, the coral life. But 90 miles away in Cuba, those reefs are incredibly healthy. And one of the things we want to know is why. And what yeah. lessons can we learn from that? And how can we apply those lessons to other places in the world, including our own backyard? Do you think it's policy? Now, I want to be perfectly honest. I'm no Castro fan in any respect. But is it Cuban policy towards the seas that might be different from, say, North American policy? In part, it is. And in part, it isn't. Trying not to flip-flop on this answer, but it, I think it really is a half-and-half half answer. Half of it is policy because Cuba has been very forward-looking and conservation-minded in its marine policies. They have declared 25% of Cuban waters to be protected in marine parks and marine reserves where you can't fish and you can't drill for oil and so on. That's a much larger number than most countries, including the U.S. and I believe Canada as well. Mm -hmm. And those protected areas are one of the best tools in our tool bag to ensure the integrity of those marine ecosystems, to make sure that all the fish can grow up to be big fish and have lots of little baby fish. It's a very important tool that is underutilized around the world. The other thing that they did was they phased out bottom trawling. That's the act of dragging huge nets across the bottom to catch fish. And in the process, what you're doing is destroying everything else in your path. It's a very, very destructive practice 
that I'd seen firsthand up in the Bering Sea in Alaska, mm-hmm. and about a thousand feet down, and found myself on the bottom, couldn't really figure out what I was seeing, and then realized to my horror I was in the middle of a huge swath, like an airport runway to a large airport that went on for miles and miles, and everything was gone. There were no corals, there were no fish, it was striking. The other part of the story that isn't necessarily related to a conscious policy, but is a result of the system of government, is the fact that there has been a much smaller human footprint along the coastline. And in part, that's because you don't have these huge engines of capitalism creating the kinds of coastal battles we've seen in all the coastal areas in the Americas and the Caribbean, where Mm. people want to live near the water. They're willing to pay a lot of money for it. The resorts want to bring people in. In Cuba, tourism is a fairly new thing. Tourism was really discouraged until the early 1990s when the Soviet Union pulled out and Cuba was left in what they call their special period. Very, very dire economic crisis where the average person found it very difficult to make ends meet, to feed their family. And Fidel decided that the future of the country was at stake and they would hitch their wagon to tourism. And that's when they really began in earnest to develop hotels and develop a tourist trade that includes Canada, Italy, United Kingdom, uh, Germany, and Spain in particular. And they've done very well by that. But because they haven't had the history of tourism development the way we have in the rest of the world, that lessened the impact on the coastal areas. So the hope is that they've had a chance to learn from our mistakes. I mean, I spent many years in South Florida and fought many of those battles, and they were frustrating, and you can see what's happened very sadly to to Florida as a result of unbridled capitalism. You know, I'm hopeful for the future down there, but I'm also afraid for the future because if you do ultimately have a transition and you do have an influx of, say, American tourists and the economic pressures that go with that, what will that translate into in terms of the environment? That's always the trade-off, isn't it, when we look at this subject? Always, always, always. You know, when we looked at the tar sands folks, you remember there was always that economic trade-off as well. But ultimately, if we destroy the environment that sustains us, we are in deep trouble. Folks, we're speaking with David E. Guggenheim. And uh, he's a marine scientist, conservation specialist, uh, part of the Ocean Foundation. He is also known as the Ocean Doctor, and his website is oceandoctor.org. David, I was wondering, when you're diving, how deep can you go off the shores of Cuba? And I want to talk about sharks at the same time, too, and some of the inherent dangers of being underwater. Well, actually, Cuba is a very interesting place because its coastal shelf is very narrow. So Hmm. you can go just half a mile, a mile offshore in some areas, and you're in thousands of feet of water, just like that. We've spent most of our time fairly close to shore, but in the northwest corner of Cuba, that's one of our main study areas, and that's where the coast remains shallower, out to a group of islands called Los Colorados, the Colorado Archipelago, which is a beautiful, beautiful area. Also recently came back from uh, an expedition in November to a place along the south coast called Jardines de la Reina, which is Gardens of the Queen, named by Christopher Columbus when he first 
discovered it back, uh, well, a few years ago, uh, and named for <laughs> Queen Isabel. And this is simply the most beautiful area I've ever seen underwater. And it was, it was really something that gave me hope for the future. We were diving up to about 120 feet down or so. What are some of the inherent dangers? You know, I mentioned sharks, of course, but there's other dangers as well, not just wildlife. What do you have to be careful of when you're diving? Well, I think the, the biggest danger is yourself, frankly. Of all hmm. the years I've been diving, I've never been attacked by anything. The only attack that I ever had was when I was in a submarine in the Bering Sea and all these squid were attracted to the light. They normally eat lanternfish, so I guess I was the biggest lanternfish they'd ever seen. I was going to feed the whole neighborhood and they were very aggressive. In November, I had a shark just nibble a little bit on my underwater camera housing. I think that was more out of curiosity than anything. The housing is shiny aluminum, which is probably not the best way to finish a uh, underwater housing because it's just like a fishing lure. You know, you're there with compressed air on your back, and under pressure, that air does some funny things to your body. So the most important thing you need to do as a diver is pay attention, not spend too long down at depth and not hold your breath and all those funny things that happen with pressure that can cause the bends or air embolisms and at the surface where I've seen people panic, I've seen people spearfishing, basically sinking under the weight of all the fish that they're trying to lug back to the to the boat. Oh. Uh, so people need to exercise common sense. I really find that the wildlife is the least of your worries. I may need to qualify that answer now, though, because sure. one of the things that I saw on this trip that shocked me that I've never seen before, on one dive, I saw four lionfish. Now, a lionfish is actually the very beautiful fish from the Pacific. It's got red and, and white striped, striping patterns on it, and it has huge spines, very elegant-looking spines, but those spines are deadly, and one touch of one of those spines is enough to kill a human being. Whoa. Those fish I've never seen before because they're not native to this area, and only in the last few years have these fish begun to invade Caribbean waters. So it's something to look out for. It's unclear how these fish got here. One of the theories is that some of these monstrous hurricanes may have taken out an aquarium. People may have released their animals. It's a mystery, but there's great concern because these fish are very aggressive and they're eating many of the other reef fish. Before you go diving, make sure you go online, look up lionfish, make sure you know what it looks like so you can keep your distance. Well, that's good advice. I didn't realize that. So nature's a little bit out of balance right now down there. That's right. One of mm. the encouraging things that I've heard, though, is one of my Cuban colleagues told me that they have found lionfish spines in the stomachs of large grouper, which have mm. found the lionfish tasty and apparently with no ill effects. That's a good conservation lesson. We got to keep some of these nice big grouper alive so that they can clean up the mess we've made. Many people are drawn to the ocean for a whole variety of reasons. Out of all the places in the world, where is the major red flag right now? You're talking in terms of a geographic region, and my mind immediately went to coral reefs. I'd have to say anywhere you've got a coral reef, which is most of the tropics, 
because we're seeing the same pattern around the world. You just draw a ring around that equatorial region, subtropics, the plight of coral reefs is pretty serious. And in the last few years, we've learned something that makes that even worse, I'm afraid to say, and that is the impacts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that same CO2 from fossil fuel emissions, mm -hmm. which is warming our planet, is also having an effect on the oceans, which may be as serious or perhaps even more serious to our global ecosystem than a warming climate. What that is, is ocean acidification. Put your chemistry hat on for a moment here, and then I'll, I'll stop talking geek but it's fine um, go if ahead you, if you take <laughs> most the, of the folks listening right now are probably well into chem studies so well, well they'll we'll have into, no problem with this yeah i will though because i'm a i'm an artsy okay. fartsy so <laughs> nah this is e this is easy chemistry thank god uh, i'll you tell take, you what a quarter note is later then okay we'll trade off <laughs> oh no no please <laughs> uh okay co2 and h2o mm -hmm. and combine that and you get H2CO3. If anyone is a chemistry major out there, they'll know that H2CO3 is an acid, specifically carbonic acid, and that's how our oceans have become more acid during the industrial age. Over the last decade or so, enough studies have now come together just the same way they have for climate change over the last few decades to paint a picture of what's actually happening in terms of trends mm -hmm. and that the future is pretty alarming because the acidification of the oceans is happening at an unprecedented rate and it's happening to a degree where there's concern whether the animal life and plant life within the water can survive. And that's because much of that life secretes a calcium carbonate shell. The clams and mussels that we eat, lobster, crab, and so on, and coral reefs all have calcium carbonate as part of their bodies. But also, if you get down to the microplankton, small foraminifera, uh, which are little zooplankton or animal plankton, and other types of plankton at the very base of the food chain, are affected by this. And if you're talking about any sort of large-scale problem that affects the base of the food chain, you're talking about a huge disruption potentially mm -hmm. to the functioning of that ecosystem. You know, unfortunately, there's a huge debate out there about whether global warming even exists or not as a human-caused phenomenon. And that debate should never even be happening because the overwhelming scientific evidence clearly shows that we are having an impact on climate. But let's say you're just not ready to buy into that yet. This is a different phenomenon, but it relates back to the same issue, that CO2 that we're pumping into the atmosphere has harmful effects. One of them is climate change. Another one that we need to be equally concerned about is acidification. Of the ocean. Many people say the oceans are indeed an early warning system. Do you believe that also? It's an interesting question. I think we do see things in the ocean that manifest themselves in a different way than on land. Mm. For example, I think with the changing climate, we're seeing the oceans behave in a pretty dramatic way in terms of large hurricanes. And of course, the fuel for hurricane is hot water. We've seen the impacts of having too much warm water in an area where we have huge areas of corals dying off very quickly. How did we get the critical mass at last to action on climate change? 
I think one of the factors that came into play in a big way was Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, and that was, came in a year when we had many, many more severe hurricanes than ever before. It was a real record-breaking year. And I think it really got people's attention and people realized, yeah, this is something we have to pay attention to. What the hell is the matter with people? that we want to destroy ourselves by destroying our environment. Or perhaps I should put it the other way, by destroying our environment, we are destroying ourselves. When does the dollar no longer matter that much? Is it going to be the point of no return? Or can we still turn this thing around? This is a really tough question because it it ultimately gets down to people's philosophical roots, but also I think it's down into the next layer in terms of how we're wired as beings. And I've been writing a series of essays, which I'm hoping one day I'll have the time uh, to turn into a book, which I've tentatively Mm. titled Unnatural Behavior, because it really speaks to that level of psychology of our wiring and how we perceive the environment it manifests itself in many different ways. For example, the scientific evidence tells us that smoking is bad for us. Mm -hmm. But how many millions of people still smoke? It's very interesting how our mind solves that equation because it's not just stupid people or uninformed Mm -hmm. people that smoke. It's a very broad cross-section of people. So when I hear arguments, even here within my own circle of greenies, as we are often called, <laughs> or, you know, to be more specific, blueies, I guess, because <laughs> That's perfect. we're ocean people. But, you know, within the conservation community, there's always an argument, we need more education. We need more education. Mm-hmm. And part of me agrees. I'm very big in education. But I also feel like there's something else we have to do, and we have to better understand human behavior because, you know, we're not there yet. And another example relates right back to what we were talking about, climate change and ocean acidification. Well, this isn't something that you can take your lawn chair out, sit down, and watch happen. It happens over decades or centuries. We're definitely not wired as a species to have that time scale make any sense to us. Mm. And it takes a lot of training. We're wired to go out, club an animal over the head and drag it back to the cave so that we, you know, we can have something to eat. I mean, that's really our time perspective. Our time horizon is very, very short. The immediacy and, of it all. Yeah, we're wired to live in the present and it's hard to value the future. And as a result, we devalue the future. These are just a couple examples of what's so difficult about this. A lot of these things that we talk about, even evolution, it doesn't jive with people's common sense or their common frame of reference. And that's something that creates resistance. It's why people reject that as an explanation of how we got here or what's happening to our environment. So I think there's that. But back to your question about why are people intent on destroying the environment, I think I don't believe that people are evil and deliberately trying to destroy the environment. There's a few probably, you know, who know that they're doing harm and do it anyway. It relates partly to a belief system I wish I understood better. And in particular, why is it so important for people to disprove global warming as an example. I can certainly understand the motivation of scientists 
who have discovered an enormous problem wanting to explain this to the world and have us take action lest we be the victims of the consequences of this. But what is the motivation on the other side for people to say it's some sort of a, a hoax? Why is there such a strong drive among some of those folks to shoot it down. That motivation, I don't understand. What can we do collectively to turn this thing around if there is indeed still time? And also then I'd like to examine on an individual basis what we could do. Well, collectively, there's no question that fossil fuel emissions are one of the biggest problems we face. So having clean energy alternatives are going to solve a lot of problems. The other thing that I think is important that we can do individually is eat the right kinds of fish. I've been working to promote sustainable forms of aquaculture, land-based recirculating systems. So you can grow saltwater fish hundreds of miles or thousands of miles inland. These are completely self-contained systems, no chemicals or antibiotics, and you basically grow an organic product close to market. So you're not flying fish around the world as we do now. But in the meantime, if people want to arm themselves with their most powerful weapon, which is their wallet, and be a smart consumer, there's another weapon that they can actually download. And there's a link on the oneplanetoneocean.org website. And I will put that link on the website, folks. Just go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. Just click on David's picture, and that'll take you right there. This is actually courtesy of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and it's their Seafood Watch card, which you can print out, and it'll fit right nicely into your wallet, or if you've got an iPhone, there's an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, and it'll even use your GPS and, and regionalize the recommendations depending on what part of the world you're in and tell you what fish to eat, and you've got to ask questions. You go to the restaurant, you go to your grocer, where did this fish come from? How was it raised? If it was farmed, ask those questions, and half the time you're going to find they don't know the answer, but you know, the fact that people are asking questions is the only way that things will change. David, there's a lot of people listening right now that are considering a career or perhaps to go on for their master's in oceanography and many of the other disciplines associated with that. What would you say to them? What is exciting? We need you. <laughs> we need you. Good answer. <laughs> um, we do, and there's never been a better time to consider it. There is a huge frontier down there. You know, this past month was the 50th anniversary of the journey of the Trieste submarine to the deepest part of the oceans. And believe it or not, in 50 years, we've never gone back. And there are only 10 submarines in the world that can take humans to roughly half of that distance. We've only explored about 5% of the world's oceans. We need help. <laughs> we need a new generation to get out there and explore because every time we put our eyes in the water, you know, all the years I've been diving, I see something new and we discover new species and we we turn our understanding of the oceans on its head. It's just a very exciting field. It is possible to make a living and feel pretty good about what you're doing. Without the oceans, there's no way that life as we know it on this planet could possibly exist. This planet would be much like Mars. Folks, our guest today, David Guggenheim. Of course, he's known as the Ocean Doctor right around the world. He's a member of the Ocean Foundation. All those links will be on the www.brenthollandshow.com website. Just click on David's picture 
Pritzker. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, my friend. Thank you, Brent. Safe journeys. All the best. I want to thank David Guggenheim for coming on the show this afternoon and giving us some enlightenment to what's going on beneath the waves. Coming up on the Brent Holland Show, Andrea Mandel Campbell. Why Mexicans don't drink Molson. Short story there is that nobody drinks Molson except for Canadians. I use why Mexicans don't drink Molson as a metaphor for what I saw as a pattern across industries and, and across the country. If we were going to have a global champion, Molson, I argue, would be that global champion. If there was going to be, it seems to me, a company and a brand and a product that we could have really sold around the world and kind of captured people's imagination, I argue that it would have been beer. And instead of that, we ended up being, in fact, the only brewing country in the world that does not have a global brand. As always, our email is brenthollandshow at gmail.com, brenthollandshow at gmail.com. Please send an email and I will answer. For Carrie Graham, who edited this show, and for Carrie Jones, who helped produce it, I'm Brent Holland. See you next time. Thank you.